Hello everyone and welcome to the 20th episode of the Connectivity Podcast. I'm Matthias Fridström and I've spent the last 25 years inside the connectivity community. In this pod, we invite guests to deep dive into one or many subjects to simply learn more about connectivity. And in this 20th episode, I'm going to continue to talk to Johan Gustafsson about connectivity and what it means to him. When we talk about disaggregation in our industry, what do we what do we really mean here? Yeah, that's probably dependent on who you ask, right? Because there's probably a, a yeah. ton of different definitions here. But but I guess that the general one that is probably most relevant for for this discussion is looking at it as separating parts of a vertically integrated solution into quote unquote self sufficient functional or or component building blocks that can then be sourced independently. I think the initiatives of the Telecom Infra Project or TIP and others really do add value here in harmonizing requirements for for some of these you know specific use cases and are also probably adding some element of risk sharing for operators in that process. And if we start on the routing side, the initial hopes of separating hardware from software was around cost. We haven't seen that materialize yet beyond probably making for more of a bottom-up friendly approach, which is which is all great. And, and it's a bit unclear to me where other savings would come from other than if you were to find, you know, a supplier with a different margin profile or something like that. But when you look at the fixed costs of, of producing those systems, you know, the software integration, the RMA and, and volume aspects, it's hard to see where those net savings would come from on, on a TCO basis. Then the flexibility and more of a DIY approach hasn't really been an operator play and so perhaps not worth getting into too deeply here. There was also a, a, an early driver for added flexibility in the supply chain, but, but during sustained shortages like the one we are in today, that hasn't really paid off either from, from what I can see. So that, that's on the routing side, but I think the, the more interesting area of this aggregation is in the optical space. And, and here, again, many MSAs and, and projects, again, like TIP and Open Rotem, they have really moved the needle when it comes to, to changing the market dynamics, both from a technical and, and commercial perspective. And, and I, I guess just to preempt any risk of contradicting myself, I, I know I said on the routing side that picking things apart and then back together isn't always going to be a net win, right? But the difference in the optical space is that we didn't have the interoperability that we take for granted in routing, you know, meaning circuits are bookended and for most deployments are massive single vendor islands with very little ability to exercise competition. And same thing there, right? Doing more of the same will always be the easy choice or short-sighted depending on what side of the story you're on. And then even within those islands, right, we've grouped together layers and functions with very different innovation and, and, and life cycles. So as a response to this, the industry is now settling at something we commonly refer to as partial disaggregation. And, and I think, you know, we were probably with the telecarrier, we were probably one of the first public announcements of this back in 2019, right? But for me, this strikes the exact right balance of 
add an acceptable operational overhead because there's no free lunch here, right? We split the components up from a technology, accounting, and sourcing perspective. So you can bring competition to the fast-evolving transponders while you get bottom-up cost structures for the commodity line systems and client optics, I should say, that you may want to amortize over a far longer period of time. So this has finally disrupted the market dynamics of of optical networking and and really bringing that healthy competition and bottom-up pricing for components with really different innovation and, and, and life cycles. And as a result, operators are now starting to embrace alien waves as the default deployment paradigms. So this brings me to the second macro trend here that, that we've both been very strong advocates of over the past few years, which is routed optical networking. And just as a recap and, and probably, you know, to connect the dots here, there are two or three different enablers to this whole evolution. We've talked about two of them, right? So one is the routing evolution where not only will the performance increases exceed the needs of most service providers, right? Where you know a single ship can forward 12.8, soon to be 19.2 terabits of traffic. And that in turn also shifts the relative spending from routing to optical and all the more reason to make sure you're exercising vendor competition on the latter, right? And, and also optimize cost around there. So, and that's achieved again, and this is what we talked about just a few seconds ago, through opening up the, the, the optical line systems and again, making alien waves the default paradigm. The last part of that puzzle here is, is, is actually the advancements in, in DWDM and more specifically around pluggable and standards-based coherent optics. So. What this enables you to do is to remove, you know, the complete discrete transponder shells and, and, and really integrate that functionality into a industry standard QSFP module and then plug it directly into any router host or any router host that, that supports a 400 gig interface in this case, but you get the point, right? So, and, and if you think about it, that makes a ton of sense, both from a operational, architectural and, and, and economic perspective, because not only can you get rid of the now surplus transponder shells that, that I mentioned, or at least repurpose them to the ever decreasing roles where they add actual value. So this is a very good analogy to the high touch MPUs we talked about on the routing side. And by collapsing that layer, you know, those components add a lot of overhead to spare keep and really duplicate in-device redundancies the new router host would already have in CPUs, A plus B power feeds, and all the other electronics that all consume power and space. And also, you know, with yet another proprietary management and monitoring software. So, and in addition, this also saves you on the back-to-back gray optics and, and the cabling, and, and also some of the, the common, we see this in early implementations, that the, one of the, the other main benefits people see is actually getting rid of that constant speed match between the router and, and the transponder, uh, which, which isn't really something I, I at least thought about initially. And this also you know, simplifies the capacity and, and, and power planning with better ROI, as you can now use the same router blade as the universal building block for both short-reach and long-range applications. And you can do that without a density penalty. So this brings a lot easier installations. And, and you know, as we all know, optical vendors even tried to monopolize that part in the past. 
uh, as well as fewer hardware SKUs to maintain and, and do lifecycle and spare part management for. Then lastly, and I, and I wanted to double click on the, the modularity aspects here, because if you think about the systems we, we have today, that would be a you know full transponder shelf with all the surplus components, and then just having to add a modem card just to light the first wavelength, that made for a very front heavy capex model and, and really poor efficiency at low utilization but also a long-term effect where you're always at the mercy of that when vendor when it comes to both roadmaps and pricing as you fill that system up over time uh, and, and then over time have to negotiate for new components compare that to now when the, the modules are pluggable and interoperable and where there's no bookending and you get a pay-as-you-grow schema on a per module level and, and without any sensible argument for, for a vendor to take a risk premium for, for the fill-up. So this, at least to me, is what will drive massive savings in CapEx and OpEx respectively. And you see operators fully embrace IPO, DWDM and routed optical networking. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. That sounds great. Uh, my feeling here is, you know, we need to agree on on standard form factors and, and other standards. Do you feel that we are locked into the form factors we need for the future right now? Or do you believe next year or the next year after new form factors will come and people will try to, again, go for more proprietary systems? Or are, is that sort of over with? I wouldn't say it's over with, right? But, but it, it's getting reduced to the very few applications where you actually require it. I mean, the, the cost benefits of staying on, on, on the same form factor, you know, the reusability, the backwards compatibility, and so forth will, will outweigh that in a lot of areas. But then if you were to ask me in seven years, if we will still have the same form factors, I, I wouldn't be able to comfortably say yes, right? But for a long, long time, that's going to be the case. Yeah. Okay. One of the other things that we've talked about a lot in our company is obviously this skill set of, uh, I would say five years ago, it was extremely clear who worked for the IP department and who worked for the optical department. That is now blurring. These two technologies kind of come together, you know. Uh, what have you seen around skill sets? Do you feel there is anyone that's going to take over the others or do we still need both? I think we definitely see both. I mean, we can try and hide, uh, you know, this is speaking from an IP background, probably. We can try and hide the complexity of of, of optical networking. Uh, that, that's a mystery to a lot of people, right? But at the end of the day, we still need to make sure that we have the same availability, that, that we can still operate the network as safely as, as we did in, in the past, right? So I don't think that's going away at all. I think we do see a shift in the model where, People are combining and thereby spreading the knowledge across the two domains, right? People are combining organizations, starting with, you know, engineering and architecture teams and then going into operations. So I think there'll be, there's a need and, and there will be experts in both areas and not, you know, at the same time, but we'll probably see a bit of a shift there where, you know, in, in the same way that, that people have the, their specialities in, in teams today, right? This is no difference. But I think, at least from an operational perspective, people have to evolve and become a bit more uh, versatile in that sense. Yeah. Uh, 
I know you have your IP background and, and therefore I'm super curious. And this is one thing I ask many of my guests here, you know, we have this never ending discussion around IPv4 and IPv6. This is a completely different topic, but I know you're, you have a strong opinion here. You know, how do you see this? When is IPv6 taking over? Does it need to take over? Will it ever take over? What's your view here? Yeah, no, I, I actually try to stay clear of, of IPv6 discussions because it's become such a polarizing topic that, that sometimes seems to be more about solutions looking for problems rather than the other way around. And, and you know, now that it's January, I think this is probably the fifth or sixth year in a row I see or hear someone say, well, this will be the year of, of, of IPv6. And uh, I'll probably offend a lot of people by, by saying so, but this sounds a lot like, you know, Liverpool fans uh, pre-2019, right? That next year will be ours, uh, right? But, but this time without a, a tangible metric. And while you and I and probably most people listening to this recording can agree that IPv6 is the only way forward and the go-to solution for Greenfield, I think some of the fanatics here are really starting to become counterproductive in fostering adoption. And, and especially for something that the vast majority of customers don't care about, right? We're riding on top of IP, like it's good, and then let alone notice any difference. And from an operator perspective, you know, I think the main problem they face is that they probably rushed into a deployment without doing the necessary pre-analysis. And what's worse, right, came into it with an IP4 mindset. And and this is really what gives you the bad connotations for, for IPv6. And it didn't have to be that way, but it really gets you the worst of both worlds because you'll see the, the operational overhead and security concerns of, of running a lot of this in parallel, but you also don't reap the benefits and the differentiators IPv6 could have had to your service offerings. So I think what, what people should do is, is look to DT's TerraStream project, you know, it, it may have been a bit ahead of its time, but it's still a good source of inspiration to what can and probably should be done, should you have that that opportunity, right, from, from an operator perspective. But other than that, right, I, I don't see the need for this to become a religious topic. I, I think that uh, we as both vendors and, and operators have to make sure that we build products with an IPv6 first in mind. And that doesn't necessarily stop at being on par, right? But that's also where you can start to create differentiations when you start leveraging the capabilities of IPv6. But again, I don't see the need why this has to become such a religious topic. I think we have more pressing concerns from an operator perspective anyway to to address. Okay, that's that's really interesting. If you and I would have this discussion in five years from now, what do you think we would talk about what, what's going to happen the next coming years if you have the crystal ball in front of you? Well, I think I, we covered a lot of, of this today already, right? We've talked about the trends in technology, economics, ecosystems, uh, and uh, you know, many of these will continue to really form the, the next couple of years in networking. You know, the, the thing that stands out for me, and I mentioned this in, in the beginning, and, and this will be an interesting thing to see how that has evolved in a couple of years, but that will be from the ecosystem perspective, again, related to 5G and, and edge computing, where I think operators are at a risk of further being reduced to be eyeball networks. Again, that might not be a, a, a terrible place to be in, but I think you still have to capture that. If, if you want to stay relevant in that space over the long term, 
you have to capture that unique position we talked about, about being able to be that, you know, multi-cloud on-ramp, end-to-end SLAs, including the last mile, and, and then bringing underlay programmability and, and observability to any overlay VPN service. So a lot of the dynamics there, I, I think, is one to keep an eye on. And, and then again, you know, we've seen the evolution of open networking. Uh, we'll see how this spreads into the RAN space, and but but definitely in the optical space, and both of which are in need of mass disruption, right? But but I think on the optical side, in five years, that that's definitely going to be something people don't talk about anymore because it's just the way it has to be and how people deployed their networks at that time. Then architecturally. We've talked about the, the advancements in, in routing silicon as the main catalyst here. And I think we'll see a lot more operators rethinking their architectures to make full use of the cost structural benefits right, that, that we discussed. So there's definitely a trend for, for separating network and service architectures where these traditional high-touch MPUs We've been moved outside of the main forwarding path to ask, what's it called, on a stick overlay uh, on top of a very simple transport that's really optimized for speed and efficiency. Then the second part of that equation is actually the, the move from device-centric to network-centric availability schemas, which will also see operators embracing more fixed systems, again, thanks to the efficiencies, simplicity, and, and, and really reusability of, of being self-sufficient. We also talked about the impact of the shorter cycles. And I think over the next couple of years, operators will do whatever they can to reduce it, the, the time it takes to onboard new technologies, both in sourcing and validation. And simplicity is really key here. I can also see some more risk appetite you know, coming from the fact that it's much easier to crystal ball two years into the future rather than the traditional six or seven. On the convergence side, fixed and mobile in, in backhaul and subscriber management. On the IP and optical side, you know, we'll see, uh, and we talked about this at length, we'll see many of, of the operators having converged to two and, and also re-looking that Rotom infrastructure uh, that's installed today. And, and I also think this will be driven by the fact that we're kind of hitting a plateau in, in quite a few areas that, that people don't really think about, right? And, and it's not often that happens at the same time. And therefore, from a longevity, that's probably not even a word. Longevity is probably the English word. This is probably a good time to make that transition because we're now, you know, moving from the 50 gig electrical lane speed era, which we all know would be very short, into 100 gig. We have the 100 gig Lambda optics available with favorable economics even today. We're getting awfully close to Shannon's limit, right? And then on the Ethernet side, you know, 400 gig Ethernet, perhaps not for the full five years of, of your question, but that will definitely be the default for operators for, for a relatively long amount of time. And that, that's in spite of 800 gig is just around the corner, but just not 800 gig Ethernet. So those are probably the things I'd be looking out for in the next few years. But having said that, COVID and, and its impact on the supply and demand may also have a, a significant role on the timing on when these predictions come true. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're really right there. And and I think that kind of concludes our discussion here. Uh, I want to thank you a lot for being my guest here today. So thank you a lot, Johan. Well, thanks for having me, Matthias. It's great to catch up. Thanks everyone for listening. 
We will soon be back with a new guest, so please follow us on Twitter, ConnectivityPod, for updates. Stay tuned until next time.